0: Special message from Mother's Day, and we all know the passage you preach out of on Mother's Day, right? Proverbs 31, right? Well, as I was looking ahead at at James and beginning to think about this, I began to see just how relevant this passage before us is for Mothers. Because friends, moms are wonderful, and they deal with a lot, don't they? (laughs) And in our passage, I venture to say, that parenthood is one of the greatest trials and testings of any life. They can come in all shapes and sizes, good things and bad things, all present their trials. And that's what James has been talking to us in chapter 1 all about. He's been teaching us about trials and about how we're to face trials. In fact, chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, he talked about how trials are God's means of maturing us. Bringing us to grow in our faith and in our joy. In other words, trials can can break you or make you. In verse 5 to 8, James shows that what we need when trials come is not necessarily to have a change in our circumstances, but to ask God for wisdom. We need wisdom, which is God's perspective on our situation. So we need trials and we need wisdom, God-given wisdom in the midst of trials, that we might grow up to maturity and wholeness in the faith. Then in verses 9 to 11, James applied wisdom, God's perspective, to a particular trial these believers were facing. These believers, James was writing to, were facing trials relating to their poverty and relating to partiality within the church. And James reminded them that in light of eternity, earthly riches matter not, and that God will judge those who have oppressed them. They needed only to live by faith. And this brings us to this morning, to James chapter 1, verse 12, and he continues to offer wisdom to those of us in trial. And he wants us to understand the difference between a trial and a temptation let's look here James chapter 1 verse 12 to 18. Blessed is the man who stands steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has been conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. This is the word of God. Many of us here are teachers or have been teachers. All of us have been students. And so we all have experience with tests. And I want you to imagine that a test has just been placed in front of you. A pop quiz. And the teacher has been saying all semester. Now... I'm going to be giving you a quiz, and it's going to come when you least expect it. I've been warning you about this, and it's not a punishment. It's rather there to reinforce what you've already learned. And the teacher assures you everything on the quiz has been covered in class. If you were paying attention, you should have no problem on the test. The teacher isn't testing you in order to fail you, but in order to reinforce what you've been learning. Now... In light of all of this, we have to ask ourselves, whose fault is our grade on the test? Right? Some people might think, man, if that teacher just hadn't tested me like they're supposed to, I wouldn't be failing. Or is it the one who's unprepared for the test? Your answer to that question is really a measure of your spiritual maturity, and is one of the things James is going to talk to us about this morning. Now, I want to imagine you're in that same scenario and you're sitting next to the smartest kid in class, the one who has actually been studying the book rather than playing on their phone during class, right? And you've got a clean line of sight to their paper. You can see every single answer. You've got a clear line of sight. And the temptation is, just give it a look. What's it going to hurt? I mean, it really is the teacher's fault, right? They not only gave you the pop quiz, they set you here next to the smartest kid in class. They had to know that this is their fault for the temptation, right? And in the midst of this trial and this test, we have to ask ourselves, will it strengthen us or will it tempt us to sin? Far from a hypothetical, this illustration is actually the place we find ourselves in where James wants to offer us wisdom. Because God is a teacher who will give us tests in this life, will give us trials Yet the same test God gives for our maturity can be misused and excused as freedom and license and opportunity to sin. When the test comes, and it will, what will you do? Who will you blame? What opportunities will you do? Will we blame the teacher as the cause for our sin? Or will we rather see the test as an opportunity to do good rather than evil? This is ultimately the message of James 1 12 to 18 god is going to use trials as a test to make us mature as we run the race of faith and receive the crown of life but james says behind it behind every single test in life there is a lurking evil potential here's james's main point we can put it this way behind every trial is both a test and a temptation behind every trial in your life is both a test and a temptation, and sometimes there's multiple tests and multiple temptations, right? But behind what you're going through in your life, there's opportunity for good and opportunity for evil. And in fact, we, we see this right in this passage. If you were able to open up the Greek text and read it in the original language in the Greek, verse 12 speaks of trial, standing the test. And then verse 13 actually uses the same word to speak about temptation, You'd see that these are interchangeable. They're the same root word. And that may seem strange to us, but in the original language, it was common for words to have a range of meanings that can be used in different ways and in a different contexts. And it really shows us the, the close relationship that trials and being tempted can be like when you're experiencing them. When you meet them on their face, they can appear very similar. But James wants to offer us wisdom to understand the difference before turning to the solution. He wants you to recognize the difference between how to receive a trial and how to receive a temptation. And here's where he starts. He starts by teaching us about the author of temptation. The author of temptation. Where does trial come from and where does temptation come from? Look with me at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life Which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 12 speaks about somebody standing firm, enduring under trial, standing the test, being approved on the test, passing the test that's come before him. But verse 13 turns to a complaint that can be common when we face a difficult trial. Verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted in the midst of his trial, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Trials can become temptations, and while the trial may be from God, the temptation to sin is not. God brings trials to make us holy and wise, not to break us under the weight of sin. And James is correcting our thoughts when we face trials. Trial in our life We're often tempted to look At God and go well if you just didn't give me This spouse If you just didn't give me these kids If you just got me a different job God this is your fault But God Is never doing anything in our life For evil but only for good He is never tempting you Towards sin God will send You trials but he does not Send you temptations Rather, James says, "God isn't the one who tempts us, because God, he he says here, cannot be tempted and will not tempt us." Did you know there are certain things people often say God can do anything? That's technically not true. There are actually things God can't do. You know, God can't sin. It's not in His character. We're actually still, He can't even be tempted to sin. It's impossible for him to be tempted or to tempt us because he is by nature holy. In Isaiah chapter 6, God gets a vision. He gets, Isaiah gets this vision of God in heaven and the angels are singing and they declare that God is holy, holy, holy. Holy. It's interesting, when you look in the Bible, the only character of God that's taken to the third degree, to the highest degree, is his holiness. Notice the angels weren't declaring God is love, 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 though he is love. But he is holy, holy, holy. He's morally perfect, separate from his creation, completely other. God is not like us fundamentally he is untemptable and he will never tempt us and this is good news because it tells us that god does not bring or allow trials in your life in order to cause you to sin or to give you an excuse to sin every temptation and trial god has given you a way out when temptation presents itself in fact james wants to make sure we know that god is not the one that sends that sends temptation into our life. Look what he says at verse 16. I love this. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He looks again at God's character. He is the giver of every good gift. God is not going to tempt us. Rather, temptation comes from somewhere else. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Temptations begin in the heart. And we're to blame for how we respond to trials. God brings trials to us for our joy and completeness. It is our hearts that tempt us to sin. Verse 12 says it this way, trials are to be endured, and we must stand the test. And he says, blessed are those who endure under trial. But then it's implied here that those who excuse their actions under trial are not blessed. And that there were real people, and I I believe they're still here today, this isn't just a first century problem, who believe God is tempting them when something goes wrong in their life. And we need to hear this. Blessing never comes from shifting the blame. I want you to consider Adam and Eve. In the garden, when Adam sinned and he plunged the whole world into corruption as a consequence, Adam is the first person to ever shift the blame. And look what he says. God confronts him. Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. Look what he says. Men, this is not a good way to respond when you're confronted by something. The man said, The woman you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And there was the first case of marriage counseling that occurs in the Bible, right? Poor Adam says he blames Eve first. Remember, God called Adam to be the one to keep and protect the garden, and yet the snake Not only got in the garden, but God up to his wife, was able to talk to her, to deceive her to eat. Then she hands it to him, and he eats, and then he has the gall to say it's her fault. Adam was to blame for his sin, but he tried to shift the blame to Eve. But notice that in his response, he even blames God. The woman you gave to me, God... He wants to blame God for what happened. He displays the same attitude that James 1.13 is trying to correct us in, to place the blame on God for his own actions, to shift the blame. That's how people of the curse live, not people who are blessed. The blessed endure by faith, walking in repentance, while the cursed shift blame, delaying repentance as long as possible. So here's the sub-point for us, the author of temptation, here's the sub-point, trial comes from above, temptation comes from within. Trial comes from above, God will give you difficulties in your life to grow you, just like that teacher will give you a pop quiz in order to test what you've learned, but he's never tempting you to sin. And here's an application for us. Ask ourselves, are you using your present circumstances as an excuse to sin? When was the last time we stopped looking at what has happened to us and consider what we might have caused by the situation? The culture would love for you to think that everything that's wrong with you is someone else's fault. But friends, there are things in your life that have been done to you, and those are terrible things. But there are also a lot of things that we contribute to our own situation. And James would call us to consider, how do we respond? Because sin is shifty. It begins so subtly. And it's a deadly poison, a cancer, that starts in small, insignificant ways. In fact, that's where James turns next. He wants to turn from the author of temptation to second, the anatomy of temptation. The anatomy of temptation. Look at verse 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, he gives you one of those family trees of sin. I knew when I moved to Katie's, I had to start to learn the family trees, Right? of folks in town. He gives you the family tree of sin, and it begins this way. It begins with desire. That's where it starts. It starts with desire. And in verse 13, he actually uses the language of a wild animal, luring and enticing us before pouncing and getting us, right? It all begins in our hearts with desires. Before we sin with our hands, we desire sin in our hearts. And trials are meant to be endured, and the potential for temptation should cause us to examine our hearts. Notice, yes, he he makes a distinction between desire and sin. But he doesn't necessarily give desire a free pass. Just because something feels good, or it's something that you want to do, doesn't make it a good and righteous thing to do. And friends, desire is not a free game just because you don't act on it. Because let me tell you this, desires are rarely ever not eventually acted upon. Potentially they are enjoyed and grow along. In fact, it's sort of a funny reality. One of the, the things we often most want are usually the last thing that's good for us, right? Genesis 3 is a powerful illustration of desire as Eve's being tempted by the serpent. Look at this, Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Do you see it? it started with a look. Then with the look, it was a delight. She wanted it. Then there was a desire, and then it was an action. She ate, and she passed it on. It began with the look and with the desire. And it often, friends, can be a desire for a good thing that can be twisted into a bad thing. Friends, the family tree of sin, the anatomy of sin, begins with a desire. But then it has a baby. Desire has the baby of sin. The language here, right, It says desire gives birth to sin. Desire is the mother of sin, right? And when it spends enough time on the thing desired... Sin is born. Unchecked desires create a problem. And we are in and of ourselves unable to keep desire from conceiving. We just don't have that willpower in and of ourselves to get out of it. And these desires can be for evil or, again, a disproportionate desire for something good. It can come in the form of idolatry to letting a good thing take the place of God in our life. And James addresses sinful desires, willing something that we shouldn't want among these believers in James chapter 4. And he says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your desires are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Do you notice how their actions flowed right out of their desires? What they wanted in their heart didn't stay in their heart. Desire, when left uncontrolled and unsanctified, gives birth to sin. But did you know, congratulations, desire isn't just a mother. Desire is a grandmother. Right? Desire gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth to death. Sin gives birth to death. I want you to look at verse 15 again. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to death. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth or gives birth to death. Desire produces sin. Sin grows up, and friends, it always grows up in the blink of an eye, doesn't it? And it brings death. From desire to death, and two quick steps, two quick generations, two quick family tree jumps. And he speaks, sir, I think, of, yes, literal death, but also spiritual death. In fact, everywhere sin is, and sin is celebrated, sin brings death. Certainly, we don't have to look far in our world today to see that. In fact, the word fully grown, I love James is doing some cool little play on words here that I wish I could show us all one day. But when he talks about here being fully grown, he's actually using the same language as he does back in verse 4, where he talks about us growing up into completeness and maturity. He says, you can either let God mature you, or you can let sin slowly murder you. Those are your two options. You're going to follow one path, and there's an end to both. The anatomy of temptation, and we must recognize, trials need to be endured, but temptations need to be examined and fought. We need to long for a crown of life. Won through running the race of faith rather than a sentence of death, which is won through unchecked desires of the flesh. But how? How do we win the war against temptation and endure desires? How do we pass that test when it comes? Fortunately, James offers us some help with third, the answer to temptation. The answer to temptation and here it is coming in quick he says this we need new birth we need new birth look at verse 16 again do not be deceived my beloved brothers every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will he's brought us forth by the truth, by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creation. First, He says, recognize the goodness of God who never changes, who gives many good and perfect gifts. Here again, that idea of perfect completeness. God's able to give far better gifts than we can ever imagine. In fact, far of us need to understand, many of us, I think, walk around in our life and in our world today seeing God as primarily a taker. God's here to take away the fun. But whatever you want, He's here to keep you from it. But no, friends, James 1.17 says, God is a giver and a giver of all good things. This includes laws and commandments which guide and protect us. But God gives any number of unfathomable gifts. Friends, the gifts of mothers, particularly good and godly mothers, and fathers and parents, the gift of children, The gifts of today's lunch. All sorts of things God gives them and every single one of them that is good comes from God. And do we ever pause and simply give thanks for God's many good and perfect gifts? Because thanksgiving is the sign of a maturing faith. Whereas thanklessness is evidence of a sinful heart. You want to know when your life's out of balance? Check how thankful you've been. And not just a warm, fuzzy feeling inside, but have you expressed your thankfulness? Some of us, our marriages and our kids and our homes are out of whack. Have you started by just thanking your spouse for all that they've done? And be specific, You're not just thanks. Be specific. Have we thought about maybe in our view of the world, we would have it readjusted? By doing a checklist of blessing rather than a checklist of burden? (laughs) So look and give thanks to the God who gives good gifts because if we can't look above our situation to see the giver of all good things, then we need a new perspective. And verse 18 focuses in on one of the greatest gifts, the gift of the new birth. And it's kind of funny when you read it. Did you notice he speaks of the Father as bringing forth something to stop and ponder that is great theology but really bad science right? because friends I don't think I need to tell you that much about this but dads don't give birth in case you didn't know despite what you might see on the news today fathers do not give birth so there's something else going on here right in fact He's using the same language he used back in verse 15. He talked about sin giving birth to death. And now he's saying God gives birth to us. He isn't speaking about physical birth, right? But he's speaking about being born again spiritually. And this is actually what Jesus spoke to a man named Nicodemus about. And he said this in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was a real black and white kind of guy and said, Nicodemus, I can't go but Nicodemus said to Jesus, like, I can't go back inside my mother's womb and come back out. Right? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I'm not speaking of being literally born again. I'm speaking of a, of a reality of the water's Cleansing you, of the Spirit of God coming into you, of you getting new spiritual life, life from above, a new beginning, a transformed heart, and a transformed life. To be able to mark your life clearly by B.C. and A.D., before Christ and after he's come. Friends, as we meet trials of various kinds, the new birth is a key ingredient. We need to pass the test and stand firm. And some of us have never experienced the new birth. We've gone to church. We've heard other people talk about it. We might have even prayed a prayer and been assured by some guy in a suit that we'd had it. But there was no real change in us. We were never meant to endure the life of faith with all the tests it brings without being born again first we can't fight against our temptations on our own we need new desires given by the spirit through the word of truth and this is what james promises Isn't it incredible? He says, through the word of truth, through God's word, through the Bible, and the Christ revealed in it, we become the first fruits, the initial harvest of God's new creation. He promises to recreate the whole world, and he begins with us. And by God's grace alone, we are born again, transformed by God's grace, filled with the Spirit, and given new desires. Friends, this is how we're able to endure the trial and to stand firm in the face of temptation. Did you know that if you were in Christ today and you've been given this new birth, you've been given everything you need by God to come prepared for everything that's coming your way? Let me show you this from Peter. Now, Peter's a little bit wordy, but follow with me here. Here's what he says. 2 Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. Peter gives us a mouthful that. Means. That's a really long way of Peter saying God's given you the divine power through knowledge of him to stand firm and to stand strong in the day of trial. The friends, God's already given you everything you need in the spirit and in the word, friends, to pass the test when the test comes. But will we pursue and study to make ourselves approved on that day? Because trials are inevitable, which means tests and temptations are a part of life. And they could arrive at any time, but God has given us all we need to pass them. So let me ask you this question. Have you been born again? Do you have what's needed to pass the test of life, to stand against the temptations of the world, and to gain the crown of life that he promises? See, the new birth is something God does. Something God alone brings about, just like you had nothing to do with your physical birth. Friends, you ultimately bring nothing to your spiritual birth. And for some, that can be frustrating because you're like, you mean I can't just like check a box and make God just do it? Well, no. But there is really good news. Here's why that's really good news. Because God, we're told right before he talks about giving us the new birth, we're told that God is a gracious giver of good gifts. Friends, if you seek him and you ask him, God will graciously give. In fact, God promises to give everything for your good. The Apostle Paul puts it this way: Romans 8:32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us? All things. In other words, he says, if God would give you his sinless son, Jesus, to die in your place, to suffer under the wrath of God, if God could display such incredible love with such an unfathomable gift, how do you think he's not going to give you everything else out of grace? And you want to talk about trial, friends. Jesus was a man who knew trials. In fact, Really, James 1.12 is ultimately about Jesus because He is the only man who has ever perfectly stood fast under trial, been blessed, and gained the crown of life, right? Because on that cross, they buried Him, but three days later, He rose again to defeat sin, death, hell, and the grave, and to give new, everlasting life. He is King and Judge over all. And Jesus' is assurance That in your trials, they're not purposeless, but they're just another step on the path of life. Friends, whatever God has given to you, it's probably a test, but it's not a temptation. In your heart, you may long for all sorts of things, but God has given you what you need to stand firm on that day. If you'll call on him. Not to repeat some words after me without meaning anything in your heart, but from your heart, ask God to give you a new heart, new desire to make you born again, and God will do it in your life. What others may have intended for evil, God sent to you through nail-scarred hands. And whatever it is today, may we long for verse 12 to be said of us, Blessed be the man who remains steadfast under trial." For when he has stood the test, you will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. If you love him, stand firm. Seek him today, and God will meet you where you are. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come... In need of a new start. Many of us today are experiencing all sorts of trials and temptations. But Lord, we need you. And we need to stand firm in your hope and your grace today. I pray right now that if there's somebody who's never been born again. Who, who, can't, who can't mark a moment in their life where that transformation happened, where a new life began, that right now, Lord, you would give them that gift of new life, that they would call upon you and find you to be the gracious giver of every good and perfect gift that comes from above. And may we who know you and have been born again, may we endure in the face of trial that may we might receive the crown of life, you promise to those who love you today whatever response we need to do whether we need to come forward and pray whether we need to be counseled up front whether we need to stay in our seat and worship you whatever it is may you be honored in whatever our next step is and we ask and we pray all these things in jesus name amen
1: I worship you.
0: know and love and serve God and to stand firm in the face of trial. Today you may be in the midst of a test and of a trial. And I want to assure you that your Heavenly Father promises to be with you, to walk beside you and to when you endure, give you a crown of life to those he's promised to those who love him. We close the service heading out into this world with the last petition of the Lord's Prayer, we pray this as we head out together. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory.